Yeah. Well, thanks for doing this, man. It's been a long time coming. I, I, uh, you know, you, you're, I was excited to be able to see you at state government relations, uh, that, that meeting at TPC meeting that we had last fall. And, um, and you know, you, you may, you're, you're a busy guy just like I am and you're doing a whole bunch of other stuff. What I was hoping, you know, I, I see you on the, in fact, I, what was crazy is I saw you in the weight room that morning. You made this comment too. I saw you in the weight room and I was like, I recognize that guy, but you had a hat on and you know, not your normal thing. And so I, um, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't even recognize you. Um, and I finished up lifting and I think you kept going, but, um, Oh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his name. You mentioned it before. Um, but he's, he's doing a whole bunch of stuff now too. Uh, but you guys do the dry boot camp together. And Damon I saw Durker. him. Yes. Yeah. So tell me about, um, so first of all, how is the dry boot camp going and, and um, kind of give me an overview of how that all works and, and, um, and in, terms of, in terms of like what are you trying to deliver uh, that you feel is different than maybe other people in the dry ice space are, is doing right now? Mm-hmm. Did we start yet? Uh, yeah, I'm, I start. Dude, that's awesome. That's awesome. <laughs> hey, uh, this, this, this is a good outtake. So this will be the very entry, intro portion. And then I, I, can, I can take it from there. We're just talking about working out and going to the gym. Dude, that's awesome. Hello and welcome to the Chris Wolf Podcast on iCode Media. Today I had a great conversation with Dr. Walt Whitley. And he and I had, um, you know, we really took a deep dive into dry eye and we compared dry eye treatments and dry eye notes and our approach to dry eye. What was a lot of fun is, is we had a lot of agreements on our, on our approach to managing patients with dry eye. And, um, and then we sort of, I tried to find some areas where we disagreed slightly and, and they were few, but, but we were able to kind of evolve our, our, our thoughts um, along a treatment protocol that makes sense for most patients. And so please enjoy our conversation. And as always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, give us a five-star review and share it with your friends and support those who support us. When COVID hit, one of the changes we made to our practice was that we would ship all contact lenses directly to our patients at no additional charge. Since COVID, we've continued this practice because it allows our patients to receive their contacts in a way that they want and also minimizes staff time and unnecessary exposure risk for our patients and team. CooperVision also recognized this opportunity for our practices to better serve our patients, and they've stepped up to demonstrate their partnership with us. CooperVision is offering free shipping with the purchase of any two multi-packs of CooperVision contact lenses shipped directly to patients on our behalf through July 31st, 2020. 88% of consumers would prefer to have their contact lenses delivered directly to their home rather than pick them up in office. And now is our opportunity to give our patients what they want, all while helping our contact lens revenue in our practice and serving our patients to the best of our ability. Check out CooperVision's program and see the show notes in today's episode. Yeah, so Damon Durker actually started Dry Boot Camp several uh, several years ago, and it's because you know he has a, he has a passion for dry eye. Uh, he has a large referral practice like I do, and we definitely saw a need where where whenever patients were being referred into the practice, that patients if we can get referring doctors to to help address the dry eye before the patient comes in the practice, just like referring optometrists prepare the patient talking about cataracts but if they, if they can take care of the dry eye as well it just helps uh, keep the process very efficient that way when the patient comes in we know we address their conditions ahead of time then we can we know that the calculations are going to be good for surgery and then it'll minimize the symptoms that patients are going to have postoperatively 
And so this was, that was actually uh, Damon Durker's brainchild where he, he had a passion for dry eye and he tried to find different people who had that same passion. And so we just came together. And so he, we started one doing one, let's see, in, uh, in Indianapolis at his practice. And they had about 100 and maybe 150 people the first time they did it with Paul Carpecki. The following year is when they invited myself, Whitney Hauser, and Doug DeVries. And so we split up the different roles. Half of it's going to be uh, uh, didactic, and then the other half is going to be hands-on. And that's one of the pieces that we go to so many meetings. We learn about all these great devices and te technologies, but we don't get a chance to make it to the exhibit hall really ask questions to people who have experience with it. And so that's where the basis of the dry eye boot camp came in. And so it's been awesome. I think we've done probably six of them already. We have one coming up this August that's actually being combined with Ahmad Fami's uh, program, which is the Twin Cities Dry Eye Symposium. Oh yeah. And so it's gonna be a virtual event. Uh, uh, part of the event's gonna be more for people who's just trying to get involved within dry eye, trying to figure out how to bring it into the practice. But then also there's going to be portions for people who are, uh, you know, have been doing dry eye for a while, you know, want to take it to the next level. And, and so there's going to be advanced courses as well for, for uh, attendees to go to. Yeah. So I, so I love that because, you know, I'm, I'm in a, in a, what I call a primary care practice, but, but the reality is, is that as you know, when you, um, when you are taking care of the full spectrum of, of the patient, right. Uh, it means that you're, you're managing, I mean, I look at my schedule and I think, man, if I saw just one, like just a couple, just normal, quote unquote, normal patients in my schedule, that'd be a nice day. But mm -hmm. most, most of the patients, once you start looking for stuff, you, you find their glaucoma, their macular degeneration, their dry eye, their allergies, you know, their anterior corneal dystrophy, you know, those sorts of things. And so um, I say that to say that, you know, we've got a, a pretty um, focused practice on a lot of these different types of things. But one of the most frustrating thing I see is when I have a patient who I feel like I've counseled well for a lot for a number of years, and then they'll go to get refractive surgery. And then the, the surgeon who's awesome, right, and, and they do a really great job, they'll send them back to me. I didn't send the patient because the patient just said, Oh, I'm gonna just go have it done, right. Mm -hmm. And then they go have it done. And it's like, oh, remember all the years that I was telling you that the reason your contact lenses are uncomfortable is not because your contact lenses, but it's because your, your ocular surface isn't very well managed. Mm -hmm. or, and, and then they didn't take me seriously and they thought this was going to be the panacea, right? And then they come back to me. This doesn't happen that often anymore, but then they'll come back to me. It's like, you know, the, their, their visions fluctuate and I'm all this, you know, um, they're not happy with their refractive procedure. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the surgeons that we use are um, are getting better about doing that, but the number one thing I, I'm now in my mind for for a number of years now, probably four or five years, when I have a patient that I encounter that I know they think that their uh, ocular their ocular symptoms are related to a contact lens material, like you know my eyes are dry, it must be my contacts. I, I'm very cautious to not just tell them that that's the case, and I, I kind of educate them, and we we run them through the battery, start them on ocular surface treatments. But I always tell them, you know, what I see in my practice is patients, um, the challenge is people think that it's automatically their contact lenses that are, that are the problem. And because when they take their contact lenses out, their eyes feel comfortable. But the, it's not a contact lens that's a problem. The, the contact lenses have gotten better and better and better and better over the years. But why are we still having as much dropout as we ever had before? And it's because those, we're not managing the surface well. 
So what, what I'll tell them is I'll say a lot of patients, when this process starts, they only have symptoms when they're wearing contacts and then they go get refractive surgery and then their symptoms go away. And then they go five years or 10 years and now all of a sudden, boom, they're having symptoms again. Well, it's because the problem wasn't the contact lens. The problem was their ocular surface. And so I'm really preventative and preemptive on that because so I see those patients less and less where they went someplace and now they come back and they've got problems. What has been your response or your um, notion of your referral practice after doing some of these dry boot camps? Are you seeing more docs take a proactive approach to this? Oh, definitely. And that's one of the things that, so each year uh, for, for our referring providers, we actually have a, uh, a cataract course. And essentially, it's just a refresher course to make sure that we're all on the same page when we're having that discussion about cataracts and various options. We know there's great options for our patients. For example, the panoptics lens from uh, Alcon, where over 90% of patients are seeing 20-25 or better in distance, intermediate, and up close vision. And so you know, we want to make sure that, they, that, that, uh, that the referring docs know who's a candidate for that, who's a candidate for a toric lens, but also talking about how we can maximize the outcomes is doing the dry eye. And so one of the things that we do challenge uh, our docs before they refer a patient over is that they haven't uh, implemented a protocol such as, or a questionnaire such as the DEQ5 or the speed questionnaire. If the patient scores a six or higher, then those are patients we say, hey, treat it, treat it accordingly, tell the patients, hey, you have cataracts, but before I refer you to Virginia Eye Consultants, I want, I'm going to take care of the dry eye, I'm going to take care of your lids, because we want you to have the best calculations to get the best outcomes as well. And so, uh, you know, I, I've heard Frank Bowden say this amongst other people talking about dry eye and surgery, whether it's cataract surgery, refractive surgery, or any, any type of procedure. Uh, if you treat it beforehand, before the procedure, it's a patient's problem. You do it right. afterwards, it is our problem. And sometimes it's a gift that keeps on giving. You know, one thing that you just said earlier is, you know, you mentioned you were being preventative. I just got out of a room like an hour ago with a patient. He goes, man, why are you all, all you doctors looking for something wrong every single time? <laughs> said, no, we're being preventative right now and making sure we're taking good care of you. It's yeah. Like, okay, fair enough. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess I can, I can see that too. I mean, I can see that frustration from a patient where they think, you know, because sometimes you, you might go into a, a provider and, and you're feeling good and, you're, and your blood pressure might be high, let's say. Well, yep. yeah, or, or your blood, blood sugar might be a little high. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many of those patients that during my training, it's like, then, then they get started treatment, you know, and you're the bad guy because now their, their blood sugar is at a normal level and they're not, you know, kind of always, yeah, let's go, you know? Yep. And so, um, so I can kind of get that, but it is a challenge. I think, I think it's probably, though, Walt, and I love your perspective on this. I actually think it's a challenge more for us in our profession to worry that we're being too preventative as opposed to a patient thinking we're too preventative. I think once you go down that role of real prevention mm -hmm. uh, and you really own it and you believe it uh, and you exude it as a practice, my, my impression in our practice is that very few patients push back on it. They're like, yes, tell me, tell me what, what can I do to make sure that I'm seeing and, and feeling mm -hmm. and, and, you know, uh, living to the best I can possibly live. Where I think there's a, the biggest pushback is doctors. We think, ah, oh, patients aren't going to want to do those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, so we all have a passion for eye care, and that's why we do this, and a passion for, you know, optometry, getting our patients seeing better. But it's also important for us to carry that same passion in every aspect of the care that we have. And so not every patient's going to be complaining about it. And, you know, since we're already talking about dry eye, the signs and symptoms, 
they don't always correlate. And so that's where we say, uh, I had a patient earlier today that uh, uh, previous, uh, previous doc that she saw did plugs every six months. Plugs are awesome. Plugs are underutilized within eye care. I mean, everybody should be plugging people, but you should also be prescribing an anti-inflammatory, but also taking a look at the glands and the meibomian glands. And so I did, she's never had a, she's had plugs for years. She's never had my biography. So we did one of those today. I said, Hey, take a look at these are your glands. You know, this concerns us. And so we want to get this better. And it's how you, you talk to the patient. I say, Hey, this is what you need. And so we're going to do thermal pulsation on you. Patients are going to feel 50% better on a daily basis after, after one treatment. But the goal is one to get you feeling better is what we want but also get the glands working better, but making sure they don't get worse. And if you tell the patient, hey, this is what you need versus, you know, saying, hey, you know, there's different treatments out there. You can try this warm compress. You know, we can do these, these expressions. You know, can they work? Yeah, but if you're not passionate about it, if you don't believe in the technology and carry that passion to the patient, I mean, they're not, they're not going to follow it as easily. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And I, um, you know, I, you and I haven't really talked shop on dry eye too much, but I, I want to kind of get into the weeds a little bit with you because I think it'll be fun. And I think we'll probably find some differences, maybe not differences that we completely disagree on, but maybe even differences in approach. So tell me, you have a patient. Now I know there's, there's a whole slew of things that you and I probably do that are, that are, um, pretty deep, but mm -hmm. let's start, um, the stuff you, that you have a patient, ocular surface dysfunction, let's say their symptoms are uh, speed of eight, right? Speed mm -hmm. of eight or speed of nine. Mm -hmm. What do you do? How, how do you assess whether or not what treatments are going to be available to them, what treatments you want to start first with? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of take me through your generalized protocol that you say, this is going to work for 80% of patients. And if I see this, this is what I would do. This, if I see that, this is what I'd do. So what I'm going to refer to first is the... Uh, uh, in 2014, we did a dry eye summit. And so there were about 30 of us. I have a passion for dry eye and was consensus where we had to come up with, you know, what are the basic questions to ask? What is the basic examination uh, as well as the basic treatment? And so for four easy questions, yes or no, are you bothered by dry eyes, right? Do you feel the need to use eye drops? Uh, are you bothered by red eyes? Or does your vision change or fluctuate throughout the day? And if it does, then we know they have dryness. I use that. that. I use that screener for every single patient. Yeah, that, that exactly. exact one you're talking about for every single patient. And then once they get into the next, I'll use speed for a more in depth. But I didn't realize that that that's where I got it. So thanks. So then you just gave us a speed score of eight. So I use a speed question to everybody. So we know they have dry eye. So we need to do the examination. You have to take a look at the lids. If you don't take care of the look at the lids, you can put cyclosporin on those eyes all day long. But if they have blepharitis, they're still going to be symptomatic. And so take a look at the, take a look at the lids, utilize stain, corn, uh, fluorescein stain, uh, lysamine green as well. Uh, and then also the tear film stability or lack thereof, whether it's tear film breakup time or tear osmolarity. And that's what we use in our practice. And then from that, then we can go to our treatment. And so the basic treatment that we came up with was doing warm compresses and lid hygiene prescribe a nutraceutical to work on the dryness from the inside, prescribe a tear as well, whether it's a lipid base or whatever tear you want. But typically if patients are using artificial tears more than twice a day, that's where we're going to go. That's where I go to a non-preserved tear. 
And then Wait, why my, do you start it twice in, in your mind when you're thinking about twice before a, a day when you're going to want to start or say three times or more a day where you're going to want to uh, start with a, a non-preserved? Why, why then as opposed to say five times? Yeah. So the reason why is because if you go back to the ITF guidelines, the International Task Force uh, that came back in the late 2000s, uh, one of the things that it graded all the signs and symptoms from mild or none, mild, moderate to severe. And for moderate dry eye patients, the user drops two or more times per day. But those are also the same patients that had quick tear film breakup time. They also had they also had staining on the cornea. And so I always use two or more. Okay. And so if it's two or more, that's when I'll prescribe a, a non-preserved tear. What's your favorite? What's your favorite non-preserved tear? So there's many. The one that I've been trying lately is sustained hydration PF. And so it actually has hyaluronic acid in there mm. as well, which is a great moisturizer. And so it's preservative free. Uh, we do a lot of cataract refractive surgery. And so that's a perfect place for that. It's only been out. I think the launch came in uh, during SECO in March. And so we've been utilizing uh, that one. Oasis Tears is another great one that we've been using uh, within, our, within, within our practice. And then the last thing that we want to do for basic treatment, patients are telling us they have dry eye, is prescribe an anti-inflammatory. And we didn't say uh, uh, steroids, we didn't say lafitograss or cyclosporin, but prescribe an anti-inflammatory. But that was do also- you include a oral, um, Do you include a oral, do you include a, a specific type of omega-3 as an anti-inflammatory, would that be on your mind as being a potent enough anti-inflammatory to qualify underneath that? Yeah. And so when it comes to omegas, uh, we typically use HydroEye hydro within our practice. It's from Science-Based Health. Uh, we are part of the clinical studies. Actually, we were the lead author of the clinical studies. Hmm. It was published in Cornea in 2013, where there were 38 postmenopausal females that had improved both the symptoms of dry eye, which is the OSDI scores, but also the, the signs of uh, inflammation, which are the biomarkers, the HLA, uh, or CD11 cell and the HLA-DR cell. And so there did show improvement in the inflammation. So we go to that. Uh, another great product is going to be the PRN formulation, 2,300 milligrams. Of That's what omegas. I use. Yeah. Yep. And, it, and the difference in one of the things I do like about that study as well is because it looked at a lot of the different, uh, different uh, tests that we're using within our office, whether it's tear osmolarity, whether it's going to be a tearful breakup time. And so they use more of those parameters uh, that, that we find in clinic. But both, those are both great products. There's other great products as well. Main thing is find a product that you believe in and prescribe it. Um, you know, the easiest thing whenever, for any of my dry eye patients, they get the basic, basic four. And so it's going to be a heat mask, not a warm compress. Warm compress doesn't get hot enough and long enough, as you know. Uh, so a warm compress, we're going to prescribe a tear for the patient, whatever whatever tier you, you feel is best, and we carry our tears within our practice. Uh, we need some type of lid scrub, so whether it's going to be uh, whatever your favorite lid scrub is, but don't just say warm compress lid, spug, lid scrubs. Tell them exactly what to do. Totally um, agree. Yeah. And so, so those are three of them. And then the nutraceuticals. So those are the yeah. four things that we recommend for all dry eye patients. One of the things, so I want to get to the next step then, because you're, you're talking about an anti-inflammatory is that. As I never answered step. the question. Yeah. Like, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no. no yeah. go ahead. So, so do you, do you <laughs> include then? So if, if, if you say like, let's, let's say your initial, now we're getting a little bit deeper, but on that initial evaluation, you see, let's say positive lysamine green staining or positive MMP findings. Mm -hmm. um, and you say, I'm going to start you on a nutraceutical. You have that patient back. You maybe, maybe you did your four, your four, like you're talking about, you did your four. 
you have that patient, patient back in a month or two months um, or even a couple weeks, you repeat that test, your osmolarity is more normalized, your MMPs are more normalized, but you, um, and your, uh, let's say that the glands are still not functioning very well, but the, uh, the lysamine green staining is, is better. Mm-hmm. In your mind, does that, is that attributable to the omega-3? Because uh, then you mentioned plugs, and I think plugs also are uh, probably underutilized, yep. but they're also, when they are utilized, they're probably utilized in the wrong space. Mm-hmm. So um, what's your thought about, let's say their myobomian glands were functioning well, so you're, everything was wonderful, maybe, maybe their tear meniscus height was a little bit down, mm-hmm. and would plugs be the next option, or would you say, no, I want a topical anti-inflammatory before I'm going to plug them? So typically, I'm, I've already prescribed the topical anti-inflammatory. Um, because oftentimes the patients are complaining about dry eye, uh, they've already tried three different artificial tears. And so I'm doing the basic four, but then I'm also prescribing an anti-inflammatory. And so, you know, patients are symptomatic. That's where Zydra comes in. It's great. Clinical studies, patients with moderate to severe symptomatology showed improvement in as little as two weeks. Uh, we were part of those studies within our practice. And, uh, uh, um, but yeah, so patients with moderate to severe symptomatology, uh, definitely helped out, but it also helps with the signs uh, of that. So whether it's going to be lafitograst, I mean, we also have Sequa, Cyclosporin, 0.09%. And so that's, a, that's another product. If we look at the clinical studies, primary endpoint was increase in Shermer scores. However, one of the secondary endpoints was looking at corneal staining and improvement in central corneal staining in as little as a month. And so we do know we can improve the signs. And so that patient that you just mentioned, speed score of eight, gave them the basic four, gave them the anti-inflammatories. I see them back in four to six weeks. I would plug them right away. Yeah. Based yeah. on those findings that you gave me. Yeah. I think, I think the, the cool part is that, you know, that you and I have never talked about this, but I think our minds are sort of melding in that same direction. I'll tell you, here's where I differ a little bit. Okay. So, um, so I would, I would tend to not start on the, um, as a rule, and, and I, I could be convinced, I, I don't think this is a, it's a wrong way to do it. But as a rule, I basically start with, with two, uh, warm compresses, lid scrubs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm specific like that. I probably underutilize an artificial tear, but in my mind, I think of as an artificial tear as masking a symptom as opposed to treating a problem. Mm-hmm. So what I want to do is try to treat the problem. And this is assuming that my bone gland dysfunction is the, is the primary driver in this case of that inflammation or a primary driver. Mm-hmm. And then I just want to see how they're doing. And the reason I do that is, is, is because one, um, and so then I'll watch them in about a month. One, I think um, the majority of patients will find out very quickly how often they're going to do those things. Mm-hmm. Two, if I start something else right away, um, then uh, like let's say I said, well, we, we need to do vectored thermal pulsation right away. Mm-hmm. And they say, I'm not going to do that. And they go online and look at my bomine gland dysfunction or and they're going to see warm compresses, lid scrubs. Like, well, let's just start there. We kind of wipe the slate clean. And then, um, and then at that point, and the other other thing I think that is important to note is the, one of the reasons that you and I probably differ is that as a primary care provider, I'm starting those two things that maybe a comprehensive eye exam where it's just sort of like, let's try this, let's start here. And we're going to have you back for a more in-depth evaluation. Right. Yeah. And then I think at that point at that one month Mm follow-up, you and I are pretty much right in alignment. You know, the, the thing I think about is, is, um, is, on my list, if, if a patient doesn't want to be on or, or can't afford a topical anti-inflammatory, um, 
I would, I would include an omega-3 as an anti-inflammatory. I was trying to, I was just asking that question for you. And the main reason is because there was a study that was done and I believe it was, they were using PRNs um, dosing, but they basically found that patients who were taking that, that dose of the DE3 basically, mm -hmm. uh, I think it was before the DE3 was available, but, but that dosing was, they were um, about a third, one in three uh, where they were 33% less likely to have MMP, positive MMP findings as people who were not. And, and it was a number needed to treat of like one in three because you started with your original risk of, of positive MMP of like 66% and your, and your adjusted risk or your new risk after treatment of like 33%. So to me, I'm thinking, well, that, that could be strong enough to, if, as long as my, my inflammatory signs are improved, I'm ready to plug. Mm -hmm. But most of the time, you're right. I won't plug a patient unless they're on a, a topical anti-inflammatory. And I would include a steroid in that as well. You know, there's, uh, I just treat those patients. I watch those patients more closely. Yep. Yep. And, but whenever you're prescribing a steroid is, and I'm sure you do the same. Uh, we have students or residents, we say prescribe a steroid. They work, they're safe. Make sure you know what that pressure was. And also you take a look at that nerve. And I don't care if they're dilated or not. Just take a look, take a peek, you know, document something because if they come back in two weeks and it's high, what was it before? Well, I don't know. I didn't check. And yeah. so you got to make sure whenever we're prescribing it, we prescribe it judiciously. You know, speaking of steroids, uh, we may have, uh, you know, uh, dry flare-ups. That's something that you're going to yeah. start to hear more of. Uh, we know patients get, can get anywhere between four to six flare-ups throughout the year. And so in the uh, Kala Pharmaceuticals, they're taking a look at lodopredinol, a lower concentration, and using it four times a day for up to two weeks. And so that might be another option that may be available to our patients. The efficacy and safety in the STRIDE 1, 2, 3 uh, studies as well, as, uh, well, within those studies have been very promising. So we may have another option by the end of the year, early 2021. Well, I've always said, you know, that if, I, it always baffles me because steroids are so good. And the reality is, is that lodopredinol is, I mean, you know, I don't know that I can recall a significant pressure spike. And I use that, that stuff a lot. Now, at the same time, you know, I will pulse a patient, you know, I, I do all the things. So I'll, I'll pulse a patient usually four times a day for two weeks, twice a day for two weeks. The reality is, is, yeah, I'm seeing them back usually a month, right? So I'm not really probably seeing the spike, but if it's going to happen, I'm probably going to see that happen. Yeah. Um, but it's a safe medication. It works, right? It's a work for and I'm always amazed that nobody had, but maybe there's not a whole lot of upside for that. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so when, when I think about, we're having a little delay here. <laughs> um, when I think about uh, some patients following that protocol that you laid out, sure, sure. Let's see. Um, let me know if it gets uh, improved by that protocol that you laid out. Like, so, but it all depends on you know how the patient presents. If they're coming in for a, a comprehensive examination, you know, they just want a refill of, of, of contact lenses, and they're not doing anything, and you identify patients that have dry eye doing the medical contact lens evaluation. I mean, exactly what you're doing. I mean, that's what I would do as well. A lot of the patients that are coming to our clinic. Uh, are, I mean, they've, they've been to several providers already and, you know, they're like, just help me. And so I be, I am very aggressive from the beginning, but that's having that discussion. I do tell, I do ask patients, I'm like, how long have you had dry eyes? And they say years. 
I'm like, yep. well, I'm not going to fix it in a week or a month, but this is what we're going to do. We're going to be very aggressive from the beginning, and then I'm slowly going to peel back therapies until we get a maintenance dose. There's no cure, but I'm going to monitor you over time. And so, so uh, it all just depends on how the patient presents. If they haven't tried anything, I mean, I, I, mean, I d- totally get it. And you do the nutraceuticals and, and the lid hygiene is definitely going to work. So where yeah. does, where does uh, microblepharal exfoliation come in for you? So for me, actually, um, in my mind, where I think that's, that's helpful is uh, I, I do not do um, that on a, like, I, we don't do that in our practice, but I'll use like a spatula. So what I'll do is like, if I'm going to do vector thermal pulsation in my practice, um, I always scrape the lids before and I, and I go after it. And, um, on those patients, if I, if I note a bunch of that, um, biofilm that's coming off, um, I will, I'll do that on a more regular basis. Um, so, so yeah, I guess for me, it's, it's, um, it's a great in-office treatment for kind of just getting an assessment of getting some of those biofilms off. I think biofilms are a huge deal. The, the biggest challenge I have from an from a in-office microblepharo exfoliation is I think it's important. I actually think it's probably the crux of the initiating step of my meibomian gland plugging, mm-hmm. which is why I start with a, with a lid scrub because I think if we can debulk the microorganisms and we can remove that just by physically moving it like this, um, then that makes, some, that makes a lot of sense. The challenge I have with, with an in-office treatment, honestly, is if, if I look at this as a mechanism um, like dentistry, for example, uh, which I, I do believe in this, um, is that if I, I've got I've to get my cost down, that cost has to come down, right? So if it costs 40 bucks to do just right out of my pocket, and then I'm going to have to bill somebody a couple hundred bucks to make it worth my time to do it, mm-hmm. um, then my concern is that if, if that needs to be done every six months, yes, mm-hmm. patients are going to pay for it. I believe my patients would pay for it in my practice. Mm-hmm. But if we're going to, you, if, if our profession is going to completely take this up, mm-hmm. I, I think that those tools have to be as cheap as like a dollar, right? Mm-hmm. Like I think you're going to have to be able to get a disposable sponge that's just like, you know, like a Wexel sponge, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts on it? Well, actually, we were early adopters of it, and I kind of fell away from it because I was like, "What?" Anyways, but then you just mentioned the biofilms, and so yeah. in the last, you know, last year or so, or last couple of years, a lot of us within our practice, we have about twenty providers in our practice. Uh, we have fully embraced it. Just from what you said, the biofilm—it's the early—it's early start of developing the meibomian gland dysfunction. So we can get rid of that film that clogs up those glands. I mean, that's going to be the earliest type of treatment. I mean, when it first came out, I'm thinking the only patients are going to need this. They have two plus, three plus, four plus blepharitis. But that's what I thought. Wrong. Everybody needs it. That's what I thought. That's what I thought. Yep. But but we were both wrong. Yeah. But the the main thing is doing something, whether it's going to be a spatula. I mean, there's swab sticks. There's many companies. The thing is to do something to to take care of it. But uh, it definitely needs intervention, and that's why it's not just warm compress. You got to have warm compress. You have to have uh, whatever lid cleanser you're going to do, debridement, whatever, whatever you need. But you got to do something. So, do you think though? So this is a this is a conversation that I'll have with my patients. I'm not going to tell you yet what I think. Um, if I had to pick warm compresses, lid hygiene, which one do you pick? Uh, if I had to pick one of those, I would pick both. 
Oh. Okay, I'll, I'll pick one for you. Uh, if, if they were just going to do one thing, I would do the uh, lid hygiene. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You know, that's what I would say. And, and I, I tell my patients now, probably until about the last two years, I would have said the more important one was warm compresses. Mm-hmm. I don't think that anymore. I think uh, because of the biofilms, I think our, we've got to control those and, and then being aggressive on those earlier for patients, you know, any, anyway, um, I, how, how fast or how long do you think it's going to take our profession to really embrace that idea? Well, we like definitely been mass. having what's that? In mass. In mass. Yeah, for well, a lot this of is us. Something. I mean, there's there's been a lot of talk, especially in the last several years, about uh, ocular surface disease, and so uh, I, I do think that more and more people are going to adopt it. I mean, if we just look at optometry itself, yes, we are vision care providers doing uh, uh, doing taking care of the glasses, the contact lenses, but we're going to be called upon to do a lot more medical, and so there's. Uh, it's, it's what we do, whether it's ocular surface disease, diabetes, which we know is only gr- going to get worse and worse, uh, glaucoma. If we just look at the trends, of which you and me are both very familiar with, no growth within ophthalmology. There's a significant growth within optometry. And so with the aging population, uh, there's definitely a need. And so it's going to be up to us to embrace that challenge to address these patients. But first, you got to identify it. You have to look. You have to listen. And you have to you have to prescribe uh, uh, for the patient. So, question for you: Have you ever looked yeah. to see how many patients have Demodex since we're talking about blepharitis? Well, so I when Demodex came around, and again, this was uh, quite. I'm a bringing few it back ago. around. Just no, with- I know, I know. So, so my so here's what I did. I, I was really aggressive. You know, I I grind lashes. You know, I try to pull them out, and um, and and then I I read some studies where I was like you know, the prevalence of patients with Demodex over the age of 70 is like 100%. And, and you know, that number is probably declining, meaning that, that the, the age now that we're looking, the age is probably less and less. So I always just enter in the assumption that patients with patients who are living have Demodex. Mm-hmm. And that, that's sort of my assumption. And it's whether or not that patient has Demodex that is going to cause them to kind of go into this inflammatory haywire, or if their their body isn't going to respond that much to it. So Anyway, I, I think I always assume that the patient's got Demodex. So if you make that assumption, what, is, what, is the, what type of product are you prescribing for that patient? Yeah, I always, for a lid scrub, I always start with a tea tree oil-based lid scrub. Okay. And, and, and usually if it's, you know, again, I, I, I don't get too crazy about concentrations, but if I have a patient with just obvious Demodex, um, then I usually will increase the concentration. But so again, I'll, I'll give you my perspective. When I, this had to be, I can't remember when it was a big deal, but, but Demodex, was, Demodex was cool to me because it was like the first thing that I remember learning about after school that I was like, they never taught us about this. You know, we learned about mites and, you know, and lice and that sort of thing. But like, I was like, where was this? You know, this was probably 2010, 2012, something like that. And so it blew my mind. And what I did was I was really aggressive at like, okay, we're going to eradicate Demodex. And so we do that, and we we at that time I was using um I was using uh oh Cleardex, so Cleardex pads, and then we'd even go through and and figure out okay are we gonna mix some some stuff and go with a fifty percent and and so I, I did that for a while, and then what I realized was that those patients are we're gonna eradicate them, and they're gonna go back home, and I'm gonna tell them wash your sheets, sterilize this, wash your dogs, all this kind of stuff, and what's gonna happen in a week or two? Yeah. They're gonna reinfect themselves, right? It's gonna reinfest. 
So I took, maybe this is a defeatist approach, but I just took the approach of like, if it's, if it's so ubiquitous, Mm -hmm. I can completely eradicate it. Or maybe we just maintenance, you know, maybe we just go with maintenance. And that's sort of my mindset now is that I assume everybody has it. I assume that even if we eradicate it from them at this point, they're going to, they're going to reinvest in, in a matter of days to weeks. And so we're just going to maintenance. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been doing the same and it just seems like everybody has it. And so just making sure you're prescribing a you know, product that does have the tea tree oil in it. Uh, you know, within our practice, we use a lot of Cleardex light um, yeah. just because it's, it's more tolerable for the patient, but it works. It is very uh, efficacious. Uh, there's there's uh, other products that are going to be coming down in the line uh, that can um, looking to cure Demodex. Uh, yeah. within a certain time period. And it's, tell uh, me about that. Let's talk about that a little bit because I've read a little bit about this and, um, and I guess it to cure Demodex. Yeah. That's interesting. So go, what are your, what are your thoughts or what do you know about it? Well, what I know about it is, is twice a day and they're going to look at it using it for six weeks and essentially just take a look to see, is it able to cure the Demodex, but also eradicate those, the mites. And so I, I don't know the details of the study. There was a, a press release a few weeks back, I think it was last week about it, but I saw that. And so I'm like, I wonder how many of my patients have Demodex. And so I'm like, man, half my patients this past week had Demodex. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, uh, yeah, it's just, it's one of the, it's one of the things to keep in the back of your minds, but I guess I, I just assume everybody's got it. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. What, what else are you, are you thinking about? Like, you know, in terms of trends coming up, you know, Scott Schachter and I have, have talked commonly, not actually not on the podcast yet. He was on last year. I'll have him on again this year, but you know, he and I have talked uh, privately quite a, quite a bit about neurotrophic uh, keratitis mm-hmm. and then also neuropathic pain. Mm-hmm. So this is something that's kind of intriguing to me a little bit, specifically neuropathic pain where, you know, you have those patients that have, um, you know, speed scores of 23. And maybe you, maybe you start them on treatment and they drop to speed of maybe 14 or something. Their, their corneas look good. Everything's just looking wonderful. And they're still just not comfortable. Mm-hmm. So those are the patients that I'm starting to think. And, and I, if I look at their history, you know, they're on some antidepressants. They're on some and, – and, and those are so – are, are they just sort of a, a patient who has kind of chronic pain disorders? What are your thoughts about that? Well, there's no, I just had a patient like that last week. And so – that's one of those where you just have to be very aggressive with the treatment. If we look at the TFOS news too, that's essentially, I mean, we can only treat what we have with, within our disposal right now. And so we know we're going to be aggressive with the anti-inflammatories. You know, if they have any MGD, we're going to try to take care of that. But right now, we definitely need other treatments that are available. For patients that are in pain, you know, one of my things that I go to is I've been doing uh, is the uh, amniotic membranes, the cryopreserve. Uh, Tom John did a study. It was uh, uh, 20 patients. Half the patients had maximum medical therapy. The other patients had an amniotic membrane, a, a Procara, for, uh, for, for about a week. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they looked at the different signs and symptoms. But one of, the, one of the things that was very fascinating was the patients on average had a pain score of 7 out of 10. But within three months, that score went from 7 to 2 to even some patients had better than the pain score of 2. And so if my patients are in significant pain, then I'm going to say, hey, take a look at this. Try, this is what I'm going to do for you. And the reason for it is because you're in pain and this is what the studies show. And so mm-hmm. I, I do it all the time with, with our patients. But that's with the cryopreserved one. Well, let me, so that's, that's the one that I use as well. And I typically am using it, uh, I'm probably underusing it for my dry patients, honestly, especially if, if, we're, if you're using it for that case. 
and I want to explore that just for a few minutes. I want to be respectful of your time, but um, the, so where I'm using it is, is, you know, erosions that just are not healing and I'll just scrape the whole cornea off and, and we start over with the amniotic membrane. It works great for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously polish and, uh, with a, with a diamond burr that, that actually works quite well for, for my patients. But, um, but for dry eye, I, I always, you know, I don't seem to have a problem with, um, patients who, uh, if I'm looking, I think I'm looking at amniotic membranes more for patients who have just, uh, staining that we can't resolve. And, and, and then if I can resolve it, we may do that. And then I try to use like autologous serum to kind of maintain that over time. Mm-hmm. But this idea of pain, mm-hmm. um, tell me about that. Like wh- when you say a pain score of seven out of a 10, are, is there a special score that you're using? Is there just, if you ask the patient, how bad do your eyes hurt? How bad is your dryness? Mm-hmm. What would you say on a scale of one to 10? Tell me about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know the details on how they, they quantified that, but I do, all I know is a scale from zero to 10 and average patients had a pretty high score, moderate to severe. Uh, symptomatology and so yeah I, I don't have the details on that oh no but but when in your practice when you're trying to assess which ones are going to do well with that type of treatment mm-hmm. um you know how do you know that this is a patient that is it just the case that you're already on kind of your maximum therapy yeah, and they're still yeah, having problems correct and they're going to be on maximum therapies you know wh- whatever their eyes look like many of them are still going to look neurotrophic like it like you mentioned but they're going to be symptomatic but then we have the ones that aren't ha- don't have all the signs but still very symptomatic it's always good to document. And so, you know, whatever that pain score is, seven out of 10, five out of 10, uh, whatever, whatever it may be, the amniotic membrane actually in that same study did show increase in, in corneal uh, nerve density uh, as, as well as sensitivity. And so that was uh, also fascinating with it within that study. And so, um, um, you know, just telling the patient and when you're, whenever you're doing a membrane, it's all about telling the patient, Hey, this is your problem. This is what we need to fix yep. it. And we're leaving it in your eye for about a week. We'll do a tape tarsorophy. I'll see you next week. We'll take it out. And if you tell the patients this is what they need, they're going to say yes. And if right. you say, hey, there's this thing we could try. It has a ring on it. may hurt. You want to try it? No. <laughs> no. Yeah. no, thanks. No, no, I agree. I, I think that's, that's a big mistake that people make is we've got to be as confident as we possibly. So I, I, I've done, I did a podcast about this right during COVID, uh, right at the beginning of COVID. But I think there's, there's an importance of, and really great clinicians understand the difference between being confident and being arrogant. Mm-hmm. And also, um, so I think, I think sometimes it can be easy to say, well, I don't want to be arrogant, so I want to give myself enough out, or I don't want to make the patient feel like I'm pressuring them into doing something. But, with, but there's a difference between being very confident in, in your approach, but also giving you enough wiggle room in the event that something doesn't go right. You know, it's in the event that something doesn't go the way that you think it's going to go, you know, and one of the ways I love to do it, and I can tell you love the way to do it this way as well is be, be able to say, this is what the studies tell us. Mm-hmm. This is what the studies tell us. And based on that, and based on our clinical experience, this is what I, I think is going to happen to you. Yep. Right. And, and this is our next treatment option. So I love that. That um, informed consent. Well, of course. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Do you do, do you do informed consent for like even, um, so obviously I do informed consent for our lipoflows. I do it for our, um, for our amniotic membranes. I even do it for our plugs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I don't know why I do it for our plugs. I know, I know most people don't. What are your thoughts about that? Uh, we do informed consent for everything, including yeah. plugs. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, um, 
you know, the nice part about plugs is so far I've never really had a wayward. Oh, oh yeah. Well, let's talk about that. What kind of plugs do you like to use? Uh, typically I've, I've been going with the six month plugs. Yeah. Like the lack resolve. Yeah. And the yeah. reason for that, I mean, I used to do permanent plugs all the time. Uh, but they're uh, the authors not coming to my mind, but you know, just thinking about, we were just mentioning biofilm and we've had patients, Oh, that plug's been in there for years. I'd love to pull that out and culture that and see what's on that thing. Cause yeah. you know, it's growing something. And yeah. so we typically go with that. Plus, you know, with a dry eye patient, I treat a dry eye patient just like a glaucoma patient. And so I'm seeing that patient minimum twice a year. Yes. And so the interval works out perfect. And, and uh, I mean, there's three month plugs, there's two week plugs. I typically don't even do the, 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 the week plugs or two week plugs anymore just because I tell, tell the patient, Hey, this is temporary. It's going to last six months. You have dry eyes. So let's just keep it in longer. It's going to cost you the same. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I, I, it's crazy because like I'm on, I'm doing the same thing. You know, I, I started out and I, I actually, during my training, I saw a couple patients that had to have um, complete restructions, reconstructions because they had a smart plug mm-hmm. and it, you know, those kind of permanent uh, intracanalicular plugs. And so I was really shy about that. So I wanted something I could go in and pull out if I needed to. Right. So then I, I did the kind of quote unquote permanent plugs that sit on, on top. And, um, and my experience was I, I never, I actually stopped using them before I saw those, some of those papers about the biofilms collecting around those plugs. Mm-hmm. Um, because in my hands, uh, 50% of the time, those patients could feel them. They'd be, the dome would be smooth. It'd be nice and opposed. And then they come back a couple weeks later. And it's like, you know, I can kind of feel it in here. And then we wind up pulling it out. Mm-hmm. So I'm like you, I, I use the Lacrosolve and I love them. I, you know, um, I would say that most of my patients don't need them every six months, but in the event that they need them every six, five to six months, we'll retreat them. Yeah. Um, I think the, the common thing, I'd love to know what you do about this, but the common thing I'll do is, you know, from a, from a practice management standpoint, I don't like to eat the cost of any of the tests or the services I'm providing. So it, what I do is I'll, I'll do the evaluation and then I have them back for those plugs. And, yeah. and, in, and, and as opposed to doing it all on the same day, cause usually I'll have to eat the office visit if I, if I do that or I'll eat the plugs. Yeah. Um, what, what are your thoughts about that? So within, within our, within our practice, so we do, everything's all medical within our practice. And so uh, if they're there, I'll just do it. I'll just do it right there. Uh, but you're right. I mean, because uh, the, the cost, the examination is part of the plug as well. Right. And so it's just whatever is going to work within your practice. Uh, for us, I mean, that's, that's I just do it within the office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that the important part is that there are different ways for different modes of practice. And and um, yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, I think that the the cool part is we're in very very interesting times. There's so much stuff we can do, and at the same time, it can feel really overwhelming. Uh, and so I love your approach. It's very common sense. It's very straightforward and it agrees ma- mainly with my approach. So that's <laughs> nice. That makes it easy. Right? It validates it. Yeah. <laughs> you validated my approach. No, it's fun. It's fun. It's great to, it's great to have those types of conversations and see where we can learn from each other. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So while I'm going to be respectful of your time, um, thanks for coming on today. Uh, we'll have to do this again at some point. Um, and then hopefully we can, we can see each other in person at some point in the future. Hey, looking forward to it, Chris. Hey, thanks for everything and have a great evening. You too. Thanks a lot. Thanks, I'll see you later. Bye.